Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in to today's service online. I've been tasked to talk about one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation today, and my portion is an exciting one. I've entitled my sermon today, The Enemy Within. Yes, I truly felt this title encapsulates the letter to the Church of Pergamon. And even as I prepared this, there was a weight of burden upon me as I self-reflected to see how much this letter concerns us personally today. So let us turn to our Bibles and read from Revelation 2, verse 12 to 17. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Thank you, Jesus. Let us just commit the word in prayer. Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father Lord, that you are a good God. And even to this day, you're thundering your message to us. And Lord, we just even want to hear from you. It says in Revelation, blessed are those who read the word of God and blessed are those who take heed and hear the message. So we just pray, Father Lord, that truly you will speak to each and every one today in this present day and that we will hear something from you personally. We thank you, Father Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to expound on this letter to the Church of Pergamum based on the seven recurring formats that we see present in every letter to the seven churches. I've decided to follow this format by taking a leaf from Pastor Chu's sermon overview on the seven churches so that we can standardize how we study the churches. What are the seven recurring sections do we see in this letter? First, the address, the attributes, the approval, the accusations, the advice, the appeal, And finally, the assurance from our Lord Jesus. Let us start with the first, the address. In every letter to the church, Jesus addresses himself with a description uniquely appropriate to the situation of the church. He describes himself according to what he wants to address the specific church, depending on their needs. Here in verse 12, he says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Jesus describes himself as someone who has the sharp double-edged sword. What is a sharp double-edged sword? The Bible is clear to indicate that the Word of God is a double-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Why did Jesus use this to describe himself? I believe it has got to do with the truth of Word of God in the Church of Pergamon. Some scholars say the double-edged sword also represents the capital punishment rights that the Roman Empire had, meaning they had the right to determine who lives and who dies. So when Jesus holds the double-edged sword, it's as if to allude that Jesus has greater power than the earthly governor. Interesting, right? 
Now, before I go on, let's find out more about this church. Now, these are some of the pictures of Pergamum today. What you see here are the remaining ruins of some of the temples. As you know, Pergamum is in modern-day Turkey. Back then, Pergamum was home to many different deities. You name it, they had it. They had temple for Zeus, Dionysus, who is apparently a god of wine. I didn't know they have such things. And Athene, and I can hardly pronounce all these names. And they even had the god of Asclepius, the supposed god of healing. In fact, modern-day archaeology found many terracotta carvings of body parts, like in this picture. It is said that whenever people got healed, they would make a body part of the heal area and presented it to the temple, like this. <laughs> Looks creepy, isn't it? People came from all over the world to be healed by this deity. Pergamum also had temples for Egyptian gods and a multitude of hidden temples. But Pergamum was most famous as the center for Caesar worship, and it had temples dedicated to Rome and its empress. So you can imagine Pergamum, at every corner you turn, there seems to be some temple for various pagan worship. It's like going to buy food at Pasar Malam or your night market. You walk through and you see, oh, this is the fried chicken store. And then on one side, you see the popia store. And then down the road, you see the prawn noodle store. You can have various street foods in one place. I know I'm making you all hungry, but stay with me. In fact, type in the chat room, what's your favorite Pasar Malam food? My husband's is apam balik, and mine is corn, jangung. So in, in Pergamon, when, when you walk through, instead of seeing all kinds of food vendors, you see the temples of different deities all around you. That is Pergamum, where the church resides. With that background, it is not surprising that Jesus proceeds to draw attention to what were the attributes of the church. He says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. In the subsequent verses, he even tells us that Pergamum is also where Satan lives. There are many views on why Jesus says that Pergamum is where Satan has his throne. Some say it is because there is a throne-like altar to Zeus. This is a modern-day picture of the altar of Zeus in a museum in Berlin. See how massive the structure was? Perhaps that is why many say that it could be where Satan has his throne. Some say it maybe it's because they worshipped Roman emperors, or maybe because it had so many pagan idol worship going on, or, or perhaps because it was where persecution was fiercest to the Christians. Now, Jesus, fully aware of the position of the church, proceeds to show his approval by affirming them. In verse 13, he says, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus knows they were living in a place where opposition to Christianity was strong, and yet they remained true to his name. Jesus commands them for their perseverance despite severe persecution. I mean, look, this is the place where Satan lives. Jesus even mentions by name about a person named Antipas. Now, little is known about Antipas, but scholars believe he was a martyr for Jesus who was bald alive in a bronze bull for his faith. That is how bad the persecution was. Most of us don't even know who Antipas is. He's almost insignificant. But you see, Jesus knew his people by name. Remember I mentioned Pergamum was like a city with Caesar worship? Now, at that time, citizens were expected to participate in Caesar worship too, or they would be suspected of disloyalty against the state to the point of being accused of treason. 
Furthermore, it is in these temples that you do your business, networking, make deals, etc. etc. So, so you can imagine the difficulty one would have to go through if they lived in Pergamon. It's like if you want to get ahead in your career, you need to go to these places to talk business. And everybody would be required to pay homage and sacrifice to the deities, but the Christians had to abstain. Could you imagine how much they would have been put on a spot? People must be wondering, what is wrong with these Christians? Yet not once Jesus told them to uproot and leave Pergamon. In fact, he gave his approval of them, encouraging them to remain true to their faith in him. Imagine for yourself, wouldn't you want to leave? Wouldn't you want to find a place that was less oppressing? Some of us may find ourselves in such a place. Maybe it is in your workplace that makes living out your faith so difficult. Maybe you live in a home filled with idol worship and are pressured to join. Or maybe you have a group of friends who have a very liberal way of life and you are ridiculed for your faith. Jesus is continuing to affirm us till this day that he knows your struggles, each of you, and you are so precious that he knows you by name. Hang in there. Remain true to his name. In fact, light always shines brighter in the darkness. The people of Pergamon were primed to be a witness. If we are stuck in a place where there is darkness, take the opportunity to be the salt and light, but beware that you also do not follow into the ways of the world. And that is why we read later on that, unfortunately, instead of being a faithful witness, there were some who would begin to embrace other teachings. In verse 14, Jesus brings an accusation. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Who is Balaam? Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was offered a handsome reward if he could curse the Israelites. You see, the Israelites were gaining territory and the Moabite king, that King Balak, was finding ways to prevent the advance. So he thought, you know, if I hired this prophet to curse the Israelites, I can defeat them. Yet, Balaam just couldn't curse Israel even though he didn't mind doing it for a wage. In fact, it was said that he was stopped by a talking donkey. Yes, you heard me right, a talking donkey. I, I literally think of Shrek, the cartoon, where there's this extrovert donkey, who don uh, extrovert donkey who talks a lot. In fact, this just shows that sometimes God can use any vessel he wishes to communicate his message, even a donkey. Go and read Numbers 22 or 24 later and check out what I just said. But we find out that this Balaam, he is so crafty. He knew he couldn't curse the Israelites because they were God's chosen people. So instead, he advised Bela, king of Moab, to entice the Israelites with their seductive Moab women and then entice their men to intermarry and eventually worship their idols. He knew that by doing so, the Israelites would forfeit God's protection over them and bring judgment upon themselves. And that is exactly what happened. Similarly, the teaching of Balaam in the church of Pergamum denotes the false teaching that pervades the church into compromising and eventual idol worship. We know the difficulties the church of Pergamum struggle living amongst a community that is so steeped in idol worship that it affects you socially and even economically. I believe Balaam's teaching perverts the truth by telling them, it's okay, you know, to go to the temple, do what you need to do for a living, and while you're at the temple, 
blend in, be relevant. And we know, once the people entered, they had to partake in some of the food sacrifice offered to idols, and perhaps even indulge with the temple prostitutes, as that was a common norm and ritual. Like they say, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. You see, there were two things that Jesus pointed out, eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. On a surface, these seems like just common sense, but it is more likely that both refer to idolatrous practices because feasting on sacrificial food and sexual conducts were usually part of the worship of idols. So it's more than just unknowingly eating food and sexual immorality, but it denotes pagan worship. Most of us would draw a line clearly if we were asked to worship Satan. No, we would deny that outright. But Satan doesn't play fair. He knows that tactic won't work, so instead he comes in a form of something less offensive. It comes in a form of seduction, deception. The enemy comes in a form that looks innocent. He lowers your guard and then poof, the next thing you know, you're compromising your faith. The enemy knows that the only way he can turn us away from God is if he can convince us enough that all we need to do is just compromise just a little. If you ask me what Balaam's teaching is, I will sum it all in one word, compromise. Compromise just a little, live just a little, give in just a little, do this just one time. That is why they always say, the devil is like a lion always prowling around waiting for its opportune time to devour you. What about the Nicolaitans' teaching? We see that Balaam's teaching enticed the Israelites to idolatrous practices. It is said that the Nicolaitans' teaching was perhaps another form of false teaching that also led the church to the same downward spiral. We also know that Jesus hates the practices of the Nicolaitans in his rebuke to the church of Ephesus. In today's world, how rampant is false teaching within the church? Now, it is very easy to blame your surroundings. The problem with the church is not that they were in the world, but that there was too much of the world in the church. Let me repeat. The problem with the church is not that they were in the world, but that there was too much of the world in the church. Meaning, they have allowed world values to infiltrate and permeate the Christian values. The worldly values creep into the world, into the church, so much so that sometimes we can't even tell the difference. The enemy within is what will destroy the church subtly, like the way the Israelites were enticed to idol worship and bring judgment upon themselves. How have we brought in the world values into our Christian life today? In the workplace, sometimes business deals can't go through unless we give favors. And this is a very real challenge. It is really like how the people in Pergamon felt. They needed to go to the temple and pay homage to get business done. Sometimes doing the right thing costs us. How about our priorities? We are all busy. Everyone is busy. If it's not work, it's kids, it's our family, or you know, it's a long day at work. And you know, sometimes you say, I just want to distress and play games, chill out with my friends and watch Netflix. I don't want to go for Land 1010 nor do I want to pray or read the Bible. And before you know it, you haven't even opened the Bible or talked to God the whole week. I believe everyone feels this way sometimes, me included, you know. Sometimes the days are so busy, it's so difficult, and I just tell myself, you know, I need some me time. Believe me, I'm a mother of two young, active boys. I feel like this sometimes. I just want to sleep whenever I can. You know, I get it, it's, it's not easy. 
But if we don't watch it, one week without God can go to two weeks, three weeks, and before you know it, it's been months before you've prayed or read the Bible. And compromise sets in. You know, I'm not here to make anyone feel condemned, but if we are compromising, pay attention to our walk because it can go downhill. How have we brought in the world values into our Christian life today? By saying, I'm a Christian, but it's just a small area in my life that I'm compromising in and I'm okay with it. We think the enemy is outside. We see that the Church of Pergamum managed to withstand the enemy outside. They came in a form of persecution. They saw the enemy was the Romans or the enemy was the other pagan believers. But the enemy is within. The Church of Pergamum had allowed compromise. And Jesus is cautioning us against that. And so Jesus gives them only one advice. In verse 16, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Now you see why Jesus started this letter by saying he holds the double-edged sword? Jesus will come against them with the truth of God. In fact, the only way we can ever fight compromise is if we know the truth of God. If we aren't clear what the Bible says, or we do not let the truths be anchored in our lives, we will find that compromise is almost inevitable. Repent means you need to have a full change of mind and walk the opposite way. But we can only walk the opposite way if we know the truth of God. The only way we can overcome this is only by the Word of God and it is Jesus our Lord that will fight. Jesus appeals then in verse 17 that whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are there beliefs in our lives that do not line up with the Word of God? Have we allowed compromise in our lives? I would like to appeal to you today this message is not just for the Church of Pergamum, it is for us too. You and I are the Church. Every one of us is a priesthood of God. False teachings don't just come from the Church pulpit. It comes from what we allow into our homes. We open ourselves to false teachings with the material we consume on social media, TV, books, and the people we hang out with. We need to guard what we feed ourselves and be careful not to let it cause us to compromise on the truth of God. Compromise is so dangerous because it is so subtle. Don't make the mistakes the Church of Pergamum did. They were so courageous, holding on to their faith despite severe persecution from outside, yet allowing the enemy within to slowly propagate. On one end, they seemed like they had it, but deep inside, something was rotting and Jesus was warning them. You know, just recently, two major Christian leaders we all know and probably respect was exposed due to their involvement in sexual immorality. I personally believe they were men of faith, and so from the outside, it all looked okay. But they fell for probably the same reasons as many others. They compromised. It's easy to vilify and throw stones at them now and think they are horrible people. And yes, we, we are angry for justice for their victims, there will and there must be justice for them. But these two leaders are also the same men who gave their lives to serve God. And I'm sure they really poured out a lot for the kingdom. I believe there is good in them. But the unfortunate thing is when we fall, all everyone will remember you for is this. Because everything you've sown will no longer be credible. They've lost their integrity. I believe they started well, but they allowed compromise and eventually, the enemy within 
led them astray. That is why it is so important to not only fly high, but last long. And unfortunately, their children and their wives suffer along them today. You know, none of us have immunity from this. If, if it's not sex, money or power, it is something else. It is so serious. And God is really shaking the world today, reminding us, repent, repent. You know, I almost feel as if God is on the microphone screaming, yo, humans, please listening. I'm thundering my warnings because the end is near. We can justify all we want on why they fell. Was it too much power? Were they too handsome or too smart? Or maybe it only happened to these people. Unfortunately, every day I believe there is someone falling, just that they aren't so famous, so it's not reported. The reason why they fell is because they compromised somewhere along the line and allowed the enemy within to overpower them. We see this happening in the Old Testament to the Israelites in the times of Balaam. We see it happening in the New Testament in the church of Pergamum. We see it happening today in 2021. The book of Revelations is so relevant for us today. And I grieve because we are so wretched. You know, Paul says this so aptly in Romans 7 verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And he continues in um, Romans 7 verse 22 to 25. He says, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, raging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, our only way to overcome all this is through the Word of God hidden in our hearts and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who will save us. Jesus gives us assurance that in verse 17, to the one who is victorious or to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. White stone, new name, hidden manna. What do all these things mean? The exact meaning of all this is a mystery, but they all denote a great reward from the Lord Jesus himself. We could never know for certain what it is. It's, it's like trying to describe what heaven looks like, but we can be assured. If we overcome, there is a reward from our Savior Jesus. Jesus will be watching to ensure we finish the race well. So before I end, let us take some time to search our hearts if we have compromised in our beliefs. Have we compromised in our worship to God? You know, compromise often goes unrecognized and unseen and can look so insignificant and small, like, oh, you know, it's no big deal, small matter, don't be so uptight, don't need to be so strict, everyone is doing it. You know, even for myself, quite recently, I was convicted on how I had compromised. And I only realized it when I started to see the effects of the compromise. You see, before this, when there was physical church, it was a struggle to come to church with a young child. You know, I had to pack so many things, you know, like milk, bottles, beeps, extra clothes, etc., etc. And, and getting your child out of the house, struggling with them to the car seat, it, it's tough. Young parents, I'm sure you know what I mean. 
And sometimes our kid doesn't want to behave themselves, you know. They make all those noises, they distract others at service, and they decide to soil their diapers when Pastor Chu is delivering the most important point of the sermon. You know, it is not convenient to bring young children to church. But I, I knew I wanted to ingrain the importance of church to my child, so I stuck to it. I brought my son to church every week. Now that I have two kids, in some ways, I really enjoy the fact that I can now attend service online at home. It is really convenient. I love it. In this time of pandemic, it is a blessing we can even connect online. There is nothing wrong with attending an online service, really. So don't get me wrong. The online church is great. You know, you, you know, we praise God for the Mac team that, that, you know, churns out this recording every week. But for me, I slowly found that I was no longer attending service with the same reverence. I would start watching the service only when my kids were sleeping, according to my convenient time. And, and I reasoned with God that doing that allowed me better concentration of the sermon. You know, I thought God will be pleased. But, but somehow, as days went by, eventually watching the service was no longer a discipline or a carved-out devotion time to God. I took opportunity of something good and exploited it. But most of all, I allowed my children to think that service together with them was no longer that important that service needed to be convenient, that I could be texting on my handphone or feed my kids while service was going on, and it was okay. A and I realized that I had compromised in my worship of God. Now, I may not be eating food offered to idols, but I had allowed other things to steal my devotion to God. We talk about false teachings. Children see what we do, not just what we say. I felt as if I had introduced a false teaching to their young and impressionable minds. You know, I've treated time with God as common and not sacred. So these days, I tell my kids, we will watch service together, even if it's not always convenient. Even if they're bored and screaming and wish I switched the channel to some kids program like Coco Melon or Baby Shark. You know, I had allowed my precious kids to become an excuse to subtly compromise. And how often have we compromised for a good reason? Anything that takes our worship from God or makes Him not our number one priority, whether just a small compromise, is a sign for alert. What has enticed us to compromise? Is it your job? Does it take you away from your worship to God? Does money make you compromise? Does money always become a deciding factor in all your decisions? What about your loved ones? Do we prioritize them over our love for God? Can compromise come because of offense? You know, I won't let go of this offense till the other person apologize. I will keep that debt and let it fester. Meanwhile, we pray to God the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive us, Lord, as we have forgiven others. And we keep thinking, the other person needs to repent and we are okay. Look, the enemy is from within. The enemy of compromise, allowing something else to usurp our love for God. And it's such a slippery slope because it always starts off so innocently. And who wins when we compromise? Satan laughs at us. So let us search our hearts and tell God, I want to repent today. Do not let this enemy within even an inch. Tell God, I want to revere you and worship you, God, alone. I do not want to worship you and yet compromise. Remember, Jesus addressed the church of Pergamum by saying, He holds the double-edged sword. This double-edged sword in Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, 
joints and marrows, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Let the Word of God today judge the thoughts and attitude of our hearts. If you feel challenged in this sermon, or God has spoken to you and you feel like in this season that you have compromised in your walk with God, I encourage you to go to our online altar call room in the link given. I know you may not have done this before, but there is always a first time. Log in so that we can pray with you and journey along. Life is not always easy. Give us permission to pray for you and commit to giving reverence to our Lord Jesus. For the rest of us, let us rise and stand and look to Jesus and ask Him to help us overcome. overcome. And together, we will overcome. Jesus deserves all our praises and all our worship and all our adoration. Let us now worship God together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father Lord, that we can worship you together. We just want to praise you and adore you and just hallelujah. We praise you, Father Lord. You know, I hope you have been ministered and have enjoyed worshiping our Lord together. May the love of the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus, and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us till we meet again. God bless everyone.